You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you today. And as best I can say it, one word can describe our guest today, and that is legend. I'm talking about Mr. Ed Asner. He's won uh, seven Emmys plus one Canadian Emmy, which means he's won more of them than any other actor in television history. He was, of course, Lou Grant in the very memorable and incomparable Mary Tyler Moore show and in his own very successful series, Lou Grant. He's worked with everyone from Paul Newman to Mary Tyler Moore and about everybody in between. He's been the president of the Screen Actors Guild and one of entertainment's most outspoken political activists. But he remains very active these days, so the chapter continues and he keeps coming up with these great roles like a few years back up, a voiceover voice acting triumph. Our guest today is Mr. Ed Asner. Mr. Asner, welcome to the program today. Well, after that introduction... I'm moving in. <laughs> pretty, pretty cool guy, I got to tell you. So I got to ask, I mean, how did this all start for you? You know, I was reading up a little bit on you and, and uh, you were in the military and worked on assembly line and all that. How did you go from that to becoming an actor? What, what got you in this business? My flight into acting, uh, I attribute to both um, uh, desire to escape and therapy, and you can probably combine the two to get what you need. It, uh, it, it satisfied the yearning of my soul. Did you just feel that you were natural? You just had it? I mean, when it, you first started in acting, I've heard people say, you know, I first started out and I was terrible and I worked and I worked and I got better and I got better. And then some people just, you know, boom, they're there. What was it for you? Did you feel like uh, you were just a natural and it, it came easily to you, or was it very hard work to become the the actor you became? Oh, I think I had what was Lon Chaney, a man of a thousand faces. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I had a thousand souls in me, and I was eager to show them off, all all of them off. So uh, I was just looking for the opportunity. A lot of them were heroes, by the way. <laughs> and I had a lot of heroes stored up in me. Well, I, I mean, you've certainly shown that over the years. There's no question about that. Now, when you when you look back, I mean, obviously, the majority of people, you know, they, they'd seen Ed Esner in various things. And then, of course, the Mary Tyler Moore show happened. But before Mary Tyler Moore, what were some of the things that you really thought were like key breaks for you? You know, key roles, uh, things that led to the, the Mary Tyler Moore show and beyond. The fact that I um, was encouraged to read for a summer production at the University of Chicago where I was going. I didn't think anything about it. I didn't care that much about it. I guess I thought I'd show off to my girlfriend. So I went and auditioned. And it was T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, a beautiful play. And I ended up doing the lead. And uh, in doing the lead, I, uh, I conquered a lady in the chorus of that show. And it became a, uh, we became momentarily the lunch of Chicago. <laughs> and, and, and that kind of set the stage for everything else. So when you talk about the Mary Tyler Moore show, my goodness, that had to be, you know, the role of a lifetime, which of course you carried on to your own very successful show. But how did, uh, how did the Mary Tyler Moore show happen for you? I mean, how'd you get that role? Well, I, um, we had uh, avoided doing comedy in those days my agent and I, because 
before you got discovered and moved on to bigger things by doing drama. So I had only done about two half-hour shows up until that time. And nevertheless, you know, they you try out for everything, so they were holding readings for the Mary Tyler Moore show, and uh, they scheduled me to read for the boss. Well, I read the script, and I, I was thunderstruck how gorgeous it was. And um, I went in to read uh, for the two producers, uh, Jim Brooks and uh, Alan Burns, and um, I read it the best I thought I could. And uh, Jim Brooks said, well, that was a very intelligent reading. And I said, yeah, yeah, and it was intelligent, but uh, of course I, I, I finished it for him. It wasn't funny. He said, well, we have you back to read with Mary. We want you to read all crazy, wiggy, all out, full no stops. And I said, okay, okay. And I started to walk out and I turned around finally and I said, why don't you have me try it that way now? And if I can't do it, don't have me back. Right. Well, I've never talked like that before or since. But um, they said, well, we do have another appointment. But uh, all right, go ahead. Go ahead. So I went ahead and I read, and I read it like a, like a, a nutcase. <laughs> and uh, they laughed. And um, they said, uh, read it just like that when you come back to read with Mary. Well, that was a week or two weeks away. And that whole time I thought, well, what the hell did I do? What was it that I did? How do I, uh, uh, how do I play crazy wiggy, uh, all out, stomped down, down, boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And I plunged into the reading with Mary, and I tried to emulate as much as I could the way I'd done it before. And they um, they laugh again and uh, said thank you, and we'll be calling, talking to you. And after I looked, I found out years later that uh, Mary turned to them and said, are you sure? Yeah, she uh, she rightfully had doubts. I was a pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> the response was, that's your Lou Grant. Yeah, and I, I mean, boy, were they right. I mean, I can't even, you know, there are certain roles you can't picture anybody else doing. I can't picture anybody else doing that role. I mean, it just... Uh, it just seems to be such a great fit. And when I think about the Mary Tyler Moore show, and, and I want to ask you about this, there have been a lot of clips and, and things on TV the last uh, month or so. And the one, the scene with you and Mary Tyler Moore, where you, the spunk scene, I, I mean, you see that constantly played and it's like, you've got spunk and I hate spunk. I just, that kind of, for me, kind of is a thumbnail of the whole thing. It's a, such a great dynamic. And yet uh, you asked me personally, I love spunk. <laughs> I think you've got a hell of a lot of spunk. <laughs> now, I, I want to ask you about that show because it seems to me that uh, with some rare exceptions, it was so different than what you were, were seeing at the time on television. I mean, you just got over things like the Beverly Hillbillies and, and things like that. I mean, sitcoms were, uh, uh, what was it, a vast wasteland for the most part. And then in the, in the early 70s, the new sitcoms like All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore Show. I mean, what you guys were doing – was I think quite a bit different than what was done before. I mean, did did you guys kind of see it that way? Did you see your guys as pioneering, or did you just think, "Hey, this is a job, and we want to do the best we can so we can keep it going"? Well, I I, I really don't know what to say there because I didn't watch those those comedies in those days. If we watched them, it was for the sake of the kids, such as uh, sure 
Gilligan's Island and stuff like that. But uh, I didn't watch it for myself. And to read the script and, and tumble as to how wonderful it was, it didn't matter to me what it was. Uh, I just loved the perfection of the script. And they did that for seven years. So um, I compared it to nothing else. And uh, as they say, the cheese stands alone. Yeah, it does. And the thing is, is that the thing about that show is that you can watch something from season one or the the final season and it all stands up. You know, some shows just go and go and go until they they run into the ground and there's nothing there and you start to see it jump the shark, you know, that that kind of thing. But not with that show. I mean, it it remained strong throughout. I mean, why do you think that it was? Was the, the, the people, the actors, was it the writing? Was it a combination of all of that? Always the writing. Uh, granted, they, they found interpreters in the actors who could execute that writing, but it would have been nothing without the writing. And it would have been nothing without the central core and force of Mary. Was the, she was the catalyst for all of us. She seemed to be very generous. I mean, you know, and again, I've never acted on a TV series. I don't know. But from what I've read in things, you know, some some shows, you know, the, the, the head of the show, the, the lead character, they want to make sure they get as much uh, screen time as possible and all that. Rosemary, she knew her bread was being buttered by uh, uh, every time she became generous. Yeah, I think that's smart. I mean, look at, uh, you know, later years, Seinfeld, very much the same kind of thing. You know, what made that show were the other characters. He was just kind of like the the sane person in a sea full of crazy. And (laughs) so I got to ask you this. I mean, obviously, very sad time for fans of the show. And I'm sure folks that knew her and worked with her, Mary Tyler Moore, passed not that long ago, a few weeks ago. And any any reflections on her as professionally a, a legend and as a person? Well, I've already Im- Im- implied as much, but uh, I can't. I can't stress it too much. I regard Mary as the axle of the show, and around that axle revolved the zanies that were us. And we had carte blanche, and we we also had excellent governors and sensitivities of our own. And with the producer writers. Checking us out, Jay Sandwich, our director, checking us out. It was uh, pretty difficult to screw up, and Mary was always that axle around which we revolved. And I, I feel that uh, you know, Seinfeld was the same way. He was um, the, the comparison I make there between Mary and, and son. Here, here were four or five great and loving people that the audience came to love. Normal people or losers, as as Tom Shales referred to us, <laughs> losers. And then ten, fifteen, what is it, twenty years later, along comes another show with four or five characters, and they are all as a amoral as you can get. <laughs> what what a, what a change in temperature, and in uh, in types. They were uh, the worst selfish people you could you could ever find unbelievably self-centered and and uh, solely concerned with self and it's amazing that they were affixed to Seinfeld the Axel as much as they were because uh, I, I I'm sure that they hardly noticed his existence they were freewheelings but we were attached to Mary 
Now, uh, I remember the, the scene at the end of that show where you're all hugging in the newsroom. Now, was that, was that just acting or was that very, very emotional for the, the crew there? At- no, it was, it, it was emotional. We, we felt, granted, we were all kind of guaranteed our own futures, even after, at the end of that show, our own shows, so to speak. But uh, I know in my case anyway, I could have gone on for another year or two doing Mary with no regrets. Now, I, I, I want to ask you about the time after that. It's interesting. You started the uh, the show, Lou Grant, uh, but it was very different in the sense that it was an hour-long drama, not a half-hour comedy. And if I remember correctly, because I used to watch that show as a kid, the Los Angeles Tribune was the name of the paper, if I'm remembering right. And, you know, there were a lot of social issues covered in it. It was uh, very dramatic and not comedy at all. Talk about the decision to take the Lou Grant character and put him in a dramatic setting and how difficult that was. Now, the show was very difficult, I mean, very popular, but I had to figure that that had to be a difficult pivot. Well, it was the choice of... uh when I was offered the show to do a show, I said, "Fine, I would, I would pick." Uh, I wanted my two producers from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. I wanted a uh, proven product, and uh, so the two of them agreed to produce the Lou Grant show. And um, four to six weeks later, I don't know how long it took, they came back to me and they said that we think we want to do an hour show. And we want to have Lou stay as in journalism and um, uh, have him return to his roots, which is print journalism. It didn't matter what they said. They could have spouted gibberish. And I said, as long as they were saying it, I didn't care. <laughs> I said, fine, 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 fine. So we went out to do an hour show. Now, an hour show, with a half-hour show, let's say, we had a live audience of 300 people. And we cultivated their laughter, and they, we used their laughter. But um, an hour show, uh, that was a three-camera show, and um, uh, a half hour using the audience. You go to an hour show, it's a single camera, and uh, there is no audience. You're working in a vacuum. There can be no laughter response. So Lou, jo- Lou, Lou Grant was written with a sardonic smile by the writers on their their lips so that it was a drama, but they, they, they realized they took the time to write in an occasional laugh line, occasional uh, humor. So of course, the crew couldn't laugh. The audience was not there. So I, I was in therapy at the time, and I asked my therapist, what did you think of the show? And he said, no, it's fine. He says, uh, why do you grimace so much? And it hit me like an axe between the ears. I was grimacing to signal to the people at home that that was a lifeline, and it was fine, okay, permissible to laugh at that point. Uh, I was cueing them in. I thought, oh, what a jerk. What a jerk. So thank God. If I got nothing else from that therapist, I got that <laughs> cautionary note. And I, uh, hopefully we went on for a few more years. And it worked. We, uh, we still got our lives, hopefully. And um, we, uh, five years later, we uh, pulled the curtain. 
Well, that was a question I had. I mean, you've been very active politically um, it, it, from everything I can gather, even, you know, watching you uh, growing up and watching your programs and so and hearing you in the media, your your political positions and beliefs are very important to you. You certainly let people know where you stand and, and are very active. Now, I had read somewhere, and I don't know if it's true or not, do you feel that your political activity had a negative uh, effect on the longevity of the Lou Grant program? Because, if I remember correctly, it was still very popular. It was moderately popular. It was the only thinking hour show on the air, I guess you could say, that presented the problems of our everyday lives and sometimes dealt with it and sometimes didn't or couldn't. But I myself got controversial in terms of talking about our uh, arming and supplying the the colonels who ran those Latin American countries, uh, trained them in uh, Fort Bragg, and I um, spoke out against that. Well, it was deemed traitorous at the time. I particularly was referring to El Salvador. Uh, Kimberly Clark was one of our sponsors. They had two factories in El Salvador, and when I made my feelings known, they canceled uh, their sponsorship of the show. Uh, others followed suit, Cadbury's Candies, Vidal Sassoon, I can't remember who else. But I was assured by vice president of CBS that sponsors were standing in line to take their place. Well, they were never given a chance to. Bill Paley was outraged at the fact that I was taking political stances as an individual, and he canceled the show. And people forget he was still in in control at that time. I mean, he went back to, you know, way, way, way back to the, the, the beginnings uh, of CBS, but uh, was still very much uh, in control and still had that kind of power. Now, you also served as the president of the Screen Actors Guild, which... Uh, you know, so did uh, another certain person who I, I don't believe you line up politically with, but uh, Mr. Reagan had been the, the president of SAG. I mean, why was the? I, I guess I'll ask you this. You know, you had done Mary Tyler Moore. You done Lou Grant. Very successful. Some people would just say, you know, in terms of politics, whether it's national politics or getting involved with the uh, actors union. You know, I'll let somebody else do that. I'll sit by my uh, pool and enjoy the fruits of my labor. Why was it important for you to not go in that direction but take uh, take another path? Well, I've always been, call it caring, in terms of socio-political ideas and aspects. And uh, I guess I was also testing the waters, testing my oats to see uh, – if anybody was willing to listen to me as an actor. And so I spoke out against uh, our political activity in those places. It had been done before by the Smothers Brothers, uh, also CVS, who were stepped on. Sonny and Cher somewhat. Cher, I mean. And I think even Murrow himself was uh, disciplined. So we all try our means of showing what well-rounded people we are. And I guess that was my effort. I just am amazed. I'm looking at your IMDb filmography and, and the different things you've done. I, I, I'm amazed at how active you've been in the past and how active you continue to be. And you've worked with 
you know, so many people, I said in the intro, for example, everybody from Paul Newman to Mary Tyler Moore and everybody in between, who have been some of your favorites to work with? I mean, it's kind of hard because you've worked with so many people, but who have been some of your absolute favorites? Well, the, the two you mentioned, certainly. Uh, Mary was a godsend. Paul was a very gracious, giving performer whose political views I also agreed with. I even, but, you know, interestingly enough, Robert Stack, I believe, was credited as a conservative. But I did four or five shows with him, and he was always a gentleman and always a giver and nice to be with. I never found the flavor. I mean, I worked with John Wayne, for God's sake, and we were polar opposites in terms of what we thought about politics. But, uh... He certainly didn't make any problems for me after the first day. Oh, okay. What happened? <laughs> he tested my waters, and uh, I think he probably would have done it, no matter who I was. He tested my waters, and uh, I withstood the test, and uh, he was sweet as uh, peaches after that. <laughs> so there we go. Now, um yeah, I, I mean, it's just amazing. And uh, the thing is, I have to tell you this little story, and I, I only mean it in the nicest way. I, my kids are 13 and 17, and I, I'm saying, I'm going to interview Ed Asner. I mean, what a TV legend. And then I say, oh, by the way, he was also Santa Claus and Elf. And they're like, Santa Claus and Elf. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is the definitive Christmas movie. Yeah, it is. One of the greats. It really is. It's one of those classics now with Miracle on 34th Street and so forth. And it's a wonderful life. Every year you've got to watch Elf. So that that's one that uh, they'll stand the t- test of time. And your voice work has been so great. Up, for example, in 2009, where you voiced that uh, character, Carl. I just thought that was such a amazing work. It seems like you've really taken to voice work and, and, and voice acting. How's that different, or is it different? You don't have to shave. <laughs> no, I love voice work. I love all work of drama and theater. It doesn't matter. I, and I get just as excited about doing one as the other. Uh, voice work uh, allows you to scale heights that you probably would never be cast in uh, if it were filmed or on stage. But... Um, it allows you great uh, parameters. The the thing is, is there's so much we could talk about, and I, you've been very generous with your time, and I don't want to take too much of it. Do you have like a little anecdote, uh, like something, a story you tell or something you'd like to share, maybe a fun thing that's happened to you over the years? There's so much to choose from, I'm sure. I thought we covered them all. <laughs> uh, let me think. Let me think. And I'm and I'm grabbing at straws because I, I wasn't ready for this one. Sorry, sorry, I threw you for a loop. I'm sorry about that. I was making I was making the uh, pilot for Police Story, and um, I can't remember who was on. Ralph Meeker was my boss, and um, we were filming, and I went out and I got plastered the night before, and I came on stage the next day, and I was still plastered. <laughs> I couldn't get rid of the booze in me. So um, I got out there, and I, I couldn't remember my lines, couldn't do anything. So fortunately, my first scene was with Ralph Meeker, and fortunately, they 
did, did over the shoulders of me onto him to capture him first. So while we're capturing him in various sizes and shapes, I'm working off the booze in me. And by the time we finally get cover Ralph Maker, fine, my booze is worn off, and I'm ready to do my close-up, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> so they turn around on me, and then we, we go to lunch. And uh, I'm already, you know, fatigued from my drinking the night before and, and from uh, working all morning. So I have uh, a hair of the dog at lunch, and I come back pixelated again. Uh-oh. <laughs> but by the time they set up the shots and everything else, I wore off the alcohol and now had the sugar of the alcohol to give me my energy to do my side of the shooting. So it was a perfect... And it was one of the best acting jobs I ever did. <laughs> I don't do that very, I don't do it at all anymore. Drink and, drink and act. But um, it certainly worked out fine that time. Yeah, I think, I, I think uh, pretty much everything you've done has worked out pretty darn well. I, I mean, you have a great career and, and great legacy. Amazing. Uh, two quick things. One, I know autism is very important to you because it's impacted your family. My brother was, my late brother was autistic, so I can certainly empathize. What have you been doing in the, the realm of autism and, and why is it so in, important to you? My youngest son is autistic. My older son has two boys and his younger son is autistic. And as such, he has entered the field of autism and is the vice president in charge of development for the Autism Society. So we are heavily involved as a family, as a bunch of the boys, and we care about it, and we, we know the great profit it, it offers in terms of talent and mentality if, if we can learn how to channel those people properly and to use their minds and their talent to benefit mankind. And I, uh, nothing, nothing has changed me from that opinion, and I, uh, I continue to act accordingly. Well, thank you from someone whose family was impacted by it. I appreciate the, the fact that you're doing work in this regard to, to help people in this situation and to, to make their, their lives absolutely the most that they can, they can be. Now, you functioning was your brother. He was pretty low functioning, actually. He wasn't like you know we see the the kind of the stereotype as Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. He was pretty low communicative. He was born in seventy one, so as you know, at that time there wasn't as much available for autistic kids, and they would get misdiagnosed and, and lumped in with other populations that had different diagnoses. Yeah. Um, so it was unfortunate, but I am so glad. Uh, I'm so glad to see that things are changing, uh, largely, I think, because of the the work of people like you. Um, well, the, these people have so much to offer as you can just develop them and, and encourage them and and stroke them. It, it's, a, it's a treasure trove, and it's a crime if we let them fall out of our grasp. Well said, well said. One last thing, and then we'll go because you've been very generous with your time. You you are very 
very active. I mean, I was looking at your IMDb. It's like 2016, 2016, 2016, 2017, 2017. Now, a lot of people would rest on their laurels. I mean, A, uh, why have you decided to just keep uh, working and and keep contributing? And then secondly, what are you excited about today? What what project are you really excited about today? Well, I I do a one-man show now. I did do four years touring with FDR. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of hit all the stops on that one, and now we've shifted to a, a new uh, one-man show written by Ed Weinberger, producer-writer on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And uh, this one is called uh, A Man and His Prostate. <laughs> and we, uh, we, we give them laughs, and we give them information on the subject uh, a male dies in America every 16 minutes from prostate cancer. So there's a lot to talk about. And I believe, I'm just looking it up now, I think you folks can find out more information at amanandhisprostate.com. Amanandhisprostate.com. Well, Ed Asner, I've got to say, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. And thank you so much for being a guest on TV you grew up with. Thank you. Wow. Just the opportunity to talk to Ed Asner. Unbelievable. Just a a real honor. As I said in the program, I've been watching him on television, of course, on his iconic shows, but his other roles since I was a kid, as long as I can remember. And to get to talk to the man and hear some of his stories and some of his reflections on the legendary career. Yeah, you can't top that. So thank you to him. And uh, thank you to you for tuning in. And please tell your friends about this show. I really want to get the audience up on this one. I think that we have some real gold here and we just need to expose it to more people. You can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And tell a friend who loves classic TV because we're bringing the best guests to the table. So we want people to hear these shows. We thank you very much. We'll talk to you next time on TV You Grew Up With. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.